Welcome to the Accra Community Church Podcast. We know that God is interested in everything you are and everything you do. In this financial literacy series, 90 and 10, we look beyond the tithe and the offering and focus 100% on the financial blessings God showers on His children. How do you make money? How do you manage it? How do you grow it? What are the best ways to invest? What can you do now to secure your financial future? Well, for answers to these questions and more, listen. Good evening. So today we're talking about managing family finances. So we're talking about managing money at home, in a marriage, in a relationship, in a family. If you recall, when we had a session the last time, it was more on giving technical information and very practical information. Today is slightly different. It's more... I'm going to share some of my experiences on managing family finances. I'm going to share some experiences from my parents, some, from some friends, um, some things I've learned here and there from books and also, so today is going to be slightly more discussive if you like, it's going to be back and forth. I'll try and keep the presentation shorter so we focus on asking questions and answering the questions. And what I'm going to do is because of the practical nature of the topic, we would also open the floor for some of the answers. We might have people in the audience who actually have more practical experience on dealing with the issues. So once we get to the question and answer time, it will be, it will be two ways. I also have some questions I might want to ask. We might have somebody in, in the crowd who may be able to answer it better or has had an experience dealing with the issue. So before we start, I was just reading something and I found out that, did you know that money is the biggest cause of the breakdown of relationships and marriages? For some funny reason, most people think it's sex. And then the second most popular reason people think is in-laws. But on the contrary, money is actually the number one reason for breakdown in marriages. And guess the percentage? Almost 50%. I'm quite shocked. I've always known it was money, but I didn't think it was that high. That over half of the marriages that break up, money tends to be the fundamental reason and then before you think of in-laws and sex and lack of compatibility and, and other things. Now the funny thing is that communication is also amongst the top 10 but money is also tied to communication because um, so it's a weird one money in itself very little of it enough of it and too much of it can actually be the cause of a breakdown of a marriage and so I was just thinking in my heart what should I speak about and I thought okay this is a topic where nobody's master, so maybe it's worth bringing it up. We talk about it and then we have a discussion. So I have seven points that I want to run through very quickly. And once we're done with those points, then we can spend more time talking and you know, trying to figure out answers to the various questions we all have, including myself. I think the fundamental thing I want us to put in our minds today as we start the discussion is that money is from God. The Bible says that he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous would flourish, Proverbs 11:28. I think that if we, if we understand that we are not the owners of the money, and the money is from God, and therefore we are custodians of God's asset, that's the first thing we need to understand. And for this point, it has nothing to do with marriage specifically. It's generally our views about money. As a Christian, our views about money is that the Bible says, it says that I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who gives the power to make wealth. So fundamentally, if we first of all understand that the money we have is from God, and by extension, 
we have been entrusted with the money as custodians of God's assets, and it is not for us. The difficulty is that, especially the, the Western culture, which is well gradually seeping into our society, is that when you have money, it's as a result of your hard work, it's as a result of the effort you've put in, it's as a result of how smart or how intelligent you are, or how hard you've worked, or how much you've saved. But I think as believers, as heaven-minded people, as Bible-centered people, yes, you work hard, yes, you earn a salary, but we must first of all understand that whatever we have is from God, is a gift from God, and then we are custodian of God's money. Now, this takes me into my next point. So first point, the money is from God, and we are custodian of God's money. The second point is, once we accept that the money is from God, and we are custodians of God's money, then it means that the use of the money must honor God. So the second point is that the use of the money or how we spend our money must honor God. I can give you an example. Example is when it comes to giving. The Bible says that some give freely, yet they grow richer. Others withhold what is due and they suffer lack and want. A generous person will be enriched, and one who gives water will get water, Proverbs 11:24. And here, of course, once we've settled the argument that money is from God and we're custodians of God's money, then the next day, in the utilization of the money, we must remember that we must honor God in the utilization of our money. Because if something is mine, and I give it to you as a custodian to keep it, and I give you the free will that you can use it when you need it, then whatever use you put that thing to must be something that does not offend me, the owner of the item. So for example, if I have a car and maybe I decide to give it to you to keep for me, or simply because I don't have enough space in my house to pack all my cars, I give you one and say, park it in your yard. But whenever you need to, you can use it. Now the point is, um, how would I feel if every morning you take that car, you load trash in it, you come and dump the trash in front of my house? So I've effectively given you something of mine for safekeep. I've given you the opportunity to use it when you can, to your own enjoyment, and then your use or your utilization of that thing I've given you for safekeeping is in a way that offends me, then the risk there is that I may decide then to take away the thing I've given you for safekeeping. So in the utilization of that money, it must honor God. And I read, it says, in the Bible says that honor the Lord God with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your harvest. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. When it comes to the utilization of the money, which then tends to be the biggest problem in marriages. The challenge is that as different people with different backgrounds, with different training and upbringings, we each have a different idea on how money should be utilized. For example, when it comes to giving, some Christians are of the view that the 10% should be on gross. Some are of the view that the 10% should be on net. Some Christians, depending on your relationship with God, would have moved away from the 10% and decided that tithe should be 15. Some can go as high as 20. Now, the challenge is that if there's financial difficulty at home and you, based on your relationship and your work with God, you decide that you want to give 20% of your income and your wife totally disagrees or your partner disagrees with it and says that we should give 10% because we need the money, where do you meet? How do you get to the point where you can both agree on the direction to take? Do you do 20% and then the other partner would do 10 or does the other partner do 15? Or do you agree to come together in the middle and say, okay, let's do 15% as a compromise? So generally speaking, 
there's no view on this one. It is your individual work with God. But then once you realize that the money is from God, we are custodians, and then the utilization of the money must honor God. Now, the position here is that when it comes to things that are not clear-cut in the Bible, and so it's not a sin, what happens is that your conviction of the matter is what determines right or wrong. I always say to people that when you take issues of... Um, for example, I know some Christian sects where they don't watch TV because they think TV is, um, watching TV is, is a sin. It's not right. Um, if you take that Christian sect, for example, once the belief, and you're a Christian and you belong to that sect, once you believe that watching TV is a sin, and if you hide behind your pastor when nobody's watching and go and sneak into the room and watch TV, for you, that becomes a sin to you. Because the conviction is between you and your God. And if you have agreed between you and your God that this particular thing is a sin, then when you do it, it becomes a sin to you. So now to answer the thing whether do you take 10, do you take 15, do you take 20, I think it is dependent on your individual relationship with God. What you have decided to do, you stick to it. If God has convicted you and you're at the point where 15% is what you should pay, then that is what God has requested from you. And then for that person, if you didn't come down to do 10, you may have offended God. So we will come to the solution later, but I'll leave it here on the use of the money. Then the third one I have is fairness. There must be fairness and equity in the utilization of money in the home. Um, we have a largely patriarchal society. We have what they call the economic oppression of, of women. We have a society where the money, the vast majority of the wealth, tends to be vested in the hands of the men a lot of the times. Now, whether it's in the hands of the man or it's in the hands of the woman, for, there to be, for the family finances to be managed properly, there must be fairness and equity in the utilization of the money. Now, what do I mean by fairness and equity? The mistake we make is when you have a family, and let's say one person works and the other doesn't, and for this purpose, I'll invert it. Let's say the man does not work, he sits home and takes care of the children, and then the wife works. The difficulty is being able to detach yourself from saying that this is my money because I'm the one that works and brings the money. Once the two have become one and it's a family, the money coming into the home does not belong to the one earning it. It's family finance. And the fairness and the equity there is that if the money belongs to both of us, then we should collectively have a say in how the money is utilized. And once we start to look away from the gender, it doesn't matter whether it's a male or whether it's a female, to the extent that we agree that the money coming into the home is for both of us, then in the utilization of the money, there should be fairness and there should be equity. If one person can take a portion of the money and carry out a particular activity or make a particular purchase, why can't the other person? Now what you find is that because the human naturally we have selfishness, what you would do with the money, you think that because you are the person earning the money, the other person does not have the right to do. So you find that in homes where one person is the income earner and the other doesn't earn income, the family decisions tend to be overwhelmingly dependent on the partner who is earning the income, much to the exclusion of the one who is not earning income. And that if we are to have good management of finances in the family, the parties must agree that there must be fairness and there must be equity in the distribution of the money. The next one, number five, make the money decision. Sorry, that's number four. Make the money decisions, don't let them make you. What do I mean here? Too many families are keeping up with the Joneses. And the challenge is that with the limited resources in the family, 
if you do not make decision on how to utilize the resources, eventually you get to the point where the resources will make the decision on how you can utilize them. And my argument is always, do we need that extra car? Do we need that extra expense? Do we have to spend that extra money? And the biggest difficulty there is what we call lifestyle inflation. In finance, lifestyle inflation is basically where as you make more money, then your expenses actually rise at a rate that's faster than the increase in the money you're making. So you find out that somebody was making 5,000, was very happy, now all of a sudden the person is making 20,000 and is struggling for money. And the reason is that the expenses that that person was incurring at the income of 5,000 level, now that the income has gone to 20,000, the rise in the cost or the expenses did not correspond with the rise in income. And so the taste has risen at a faster rate than the actual increase in the rate of the income. And a good example there is where, especially the banks, as soon as you are promoted, one of the things they, they start pushing you is to take a loan and buy a, a nicer car so that it fits your profile. So if you were making 5,000, now you've been promoted, you're going to make 7,000. And they push you to take a loan and buy another car where your loan deduction is now 3,000. So all of a sudden, yes, your income has gone up by 2,000 to 7,000. But now the loan deduction is now 3,000, so you're back to 4,000. So all things be you're actually worse off than the position you were before the promotion or before the increase in salary. So when it comes to making decisions, you have to make decisions with the money and not allow the money to make decisions for you. And the reason I say this is that if you don't make conscious decisions to watch the lifestyle inflation and ensure that it doesn't grow faster than the growth in the rate of money, Eventually, a time will come when you would not have a choice, but the systems will be made for you. For example, you may have to sell that second car, or you may have to downsize, or like consolidated bank happen when the job loss happens, then you go in a far worse position than you were before that increase in um, remuneration came in. Now, the fifth point, under the fifth point, I have sub-points. The earlier ones were just introduction. I have sub-points on how do we solve these problems. So all the problems I've listed in one to four, how do we solve the problems? So I've brought sub-points, which I call practical guide to solving the problem. The first one, so this is point number five, but there are sub-points. The first one is have a budget. Most families do not have a budget. And the money is spent as it comes in, and then once the money is finished, then it's finished. The first step to managing finances in a family or in a marriage is have a budget that is drawn together by both parties. If you know how much you earn, or you know what the disposable income is, if you put it all together in a pot, and then start deciding how much goes to utility, how much goes to rent, how much goes to fuel, you break down the total monthly costs and expenditure that the family has to incur. From the very beginning, it gives you a sense of what you are able and what you are not able to do. If you draw that budget, and let's say at the end of drawing up the budget, the money that you have is actually not enough, and you know that it will not last you the end of the month. It's easier to make certain practical decisions that, okay, there's a funeral and everybody's buying a cloth. I will not buy it because once I've made the family budget, I know that for this particular month, maybe because of school fees, the family's wealth would not last as end of the month. Therefore, in this particular month, no purchases. So you can make certain difficult decisions and say, I will not buy this that thing I was thinking of buying, I can defer it or I can delay it to another time. Most families do not have budgets. And the problem is that as you spend the money, you are not aware the particular point in the month at which the money runs out. 
And so with the lack of budget, the day that the money runs out, it becomes a surprise. And then there is frustration. Now, point number two there is communicate. And it relates with point number one. Now, once you have a budget, it doesn't matter who is managing the family finances. You know what you have. And as you are spending towards that budget, if you communicate and we know how much is left, it's easier for both parties to know, OK, at what rate do we need to slow down? At what date do we run out of the money? What's the difference between the date we run out of the money and when the next paycheck is coming? Now, for those number of days, how are we going to manage? What do we do? You find that mostly, and this I put the blame largely on the men because we are not very good communicators. Mostly, the money is in the hands of the man. He's spending. The other person does not know how much is left, asks for something. There's no communication to explain that, OK, this is what we have left, or the money is finished. Maybe some unexpected expenditure came up. There was a flat tire, so we had to buy a new tire. The battery in the car ran down, so we had to buy a new battery. Now, in the absence of communication, the way God has blessed our sisters, their mind works, is very good at calculation. She has a ballpark sense of how much came in. Because you are not communicating and giving a fair sense of how much is being spent on a daily basis, or how much has been spent and how much is left, you have the challenge where if that, if in that person's mind we're supposed to have 20,000 left, there's nothing wrong if I have to ask you to give me 1,000 to attend a funeral or to, to buy something or to spend on something which you do not consider important. Now, what happens is that communication helps you understand as you deplete the family's resources. So it's easier to make decisions collectively. If, for example, the man were to say, oh, I want to spend the weekend out with the boy, so I want to draw out X amount of money. The wife says, okay, well, this is how much we have left. This is how many more days left for the end of the month. And we know we don't get paid to this day. So the 2,000 we have left, this is what we plan to do with it. If you feel right collecting 1,000 to go and go and blow it with the boys, well then, uh, go ahead. Now, the problem with the lack of communication is that everybody goes away with their sense of what is left, which might not really be the case. My third one here is choose your investment strategy. Choose your spending and investment strategy. With the spending strategy, I'm not going to sit here and tell you there's one that works and one that does not. My brother, for example, he and his wife, they are both professionals, both earn money, different sizes of money. What they've decided is that every month we have a family account. Everybody puts 50% of their income into that account, and we run it as a family account. And it's percentage. It doesn't matter what you earn. So if this time you get a promotion, if this person's own is higher and next month the other person's own is higher, irrespective of what amount any of the parties earn, you both put 50% of your total income into that family account, and that family account runs the home. So for example, pays the mortgage, or if the house is paid off, it pays the light bill, the water bill, you pay the children's school fees. That's the family account which is used to pay for everything. And then the 50% you keep is your money, and you can use it the way you want without accountability to the other party. Is that right? Is that wrong? Who is to decide? It's what both parties agree that this is what works for us. Now, that's one side. Some families also believe that one of the partners is more disciplined financially. And therefore, those families can make a decision that we would leave the family spending with this particular person. Now, if you remember the earlier point, if there is fairness and openness, equity, you can trust the person that we will leave the family finances with this person. And every time there is a need, 
I can go back to this person and make a request and be able to collect some of the family money to go and spend. That's another option. So if both of you agree on your spending strategy and conclude that one person in the family or in the home is more able to manage the family finances, you can actually decide to put the family finances in the hands of that person to manage on behalf of the family. That's one strategy. There's also another one which um, is not very common on this side of the world, it's more in the West, where the parties earn all their income into a joint account. 100% of everybody's revenue in the family, whether it's salary or business, whatever you earn, comes collectively into a joint family account and then collectively you spend from the family account. So the three strategies were you contribute a fixed percentage. The reason it's a percentage is so that somebody doesn't feel cheated. You don't say, okay, I'm paying more than you are. It's a percentage. So tomorrow if your income rises above mine, we're still doing the same percentage. So that's option one, you do a fixed percentage. Option two is to give all the family finances to one person who the parties agree is better at managing the family's finances and that person would manage the finance. And then the third option is you put all together into a joint account and you collectively run the family finances. These are the three main options when it comes to running the family home. Now, the one that's better or not is purely dependent on what works for the couple. I did say earlier that my brother and his wife, they do the fixed percentage. The fixed percentage does not work for some families. We have a situation that I don't know why, but for some reason my wife seems to trust me to be good with handling money. So I handle the family finances. And so I make decisions on the family finances. Sometimes it's good to discuss it and understand the strengths and the weaknesses of the people. For example, one weakness that my wife has is that when you have to, she cannot say no. I asked her permission, so she knows I'm saying this. Don't worry. When she has to, she doesn't know how to say no. I have a very kind heart, but when I have to say no, I will say no. And the ability to say no without feeling bad and feeling guilty about it is very important to managing the family finances. So if you know you are the person who cannot say no, and friends and family have a way of identifying that very quickly. So if you know you are the one who cannot say no, one of the strategies that's good is adopt the one where the other person manages the money. Let me branch off a little bit. One of the things you do is, if you remember from the investment strategy, if you don't keep too much money in your current account, your ability to say no becomes much easier. If you're dealing with somebody who struggles to say no, then once there's money in the current account, the savings account, and somebody is in need, then that person's sense of guilt is that, oh, there's money in the account. If I tell the person I don't have, then I'm lying, then it's a sin, or I'm seeing the person, oh, the easiest thing is put all the money in investment, the one you need to live on, you leave it in your account. So when you say, I don't have, I really don't have, because in my world, the money that's in my investment is not my money. So if somebody is in need and I say I don't have, I actually do not feel bad, because my money that I have available to give does not include what I have in investment or what I put away for my family. So the no comes very easy. If I do have, I would give. If I don't, I won't give. So. The reason why you need to agree on the spending strategy is that when it is discussed, it's easy for you to pick some of these nuances and figure out, okay, who is better at doing this? Who is better at managing the lump sum? Who is better at managing the small amount? Some families decide that, okay, for the lump sum, for example, this person manages it. For the smaller amount, this person manages it. So once you discuss, you find out the one that's more appropriate for the family, and then you can implement it. None is better than the other, and it's also okay if you choose one and it doesn't work, you try the next one. 
If it doesn't work, you try the third one. Some people even use a hybrid of the two. So for example, whereas I make most of the decisions on the major management of our funds, when it comes to the day-to-day -day running of the home, I cannot get involved. I can't handle it. My brains just do not have the capacity for it. So for those ones, my wife would make the decision. If you live with me, I'll forget that there's no milk. I'll forget that we haven't paid the lights, but the lights will go off. I will forget that we don't have fuel in the generator. So on those practical day-to-day -day ones, then my wife would manage them. And the truth is because there's a budget and the money is tied close to a specific budget, when the monthly money is in their hands, it's easy to say, although if I sometimes I even go and say, Charlie, I'm broke money. Hey, this money, Charlie, it's very tight for the month, so I can't give you anything. So you find out that with somebody like that, giving them the specific allocation for the month to run the home is easier to do because the budget is very tight and there's no way to fall out of it. Whereas if you allow them to keep the general family finances, then the difficulty is that you might have leakages, which is not deliberate, but just by virtue, for example, the person's inability to say no. And similar to the setting your spending strategy, you should also set your investment strategy. It's easier for a family that is investing together as a family to actually invest than when one person is doing the investment or everybody is doing their investment individually. I get money, I put some in treasury bills. You get money, you go and buy shares, you go and do that. When it's done together, it's far easier to hold each other accountable. As much as you have to set and agree what the family spending strategy is, it's also good to set the family investment strategy and do it together. Because like the Bible says, if one can chase a thousand, two can chase ten thousand. So set, agree on the family spending and investment strategy. The fourth one, is that correct? Talk about money. Um, we have a funny relationship with money where families, for some reason, everybody is talking to their friend about money but not talking to their partner about money. And I've done some discussions on the side. I've spoken to friends, I've spoken to partners. I've done some informal surveys in the past. And for most people you ask, you find that guys are more comfortable talking to their guy friends about their money problems. Ladies are more comfortable talking to their lady friends about their money problems. Now, guys are worse in the sense that the last person to always find out when a man has financial difficulty tends to be his wife. Now, part of it may be driven by ego. And part of it may be driven by the fear of being vulnerable to the person to say that, look, we are in financial crisis. And sometimes also, especially this, and now mostly from the men's side to the women, they feel that if you tell her, she will blow it out of proportion and start screaming. So I'm keeping it to myself and trying to manage us out of the situation. And once I successfully manage us out of the situation, it will be irrelevant anyway, so there's no need to tell. Yes, there's an argument for that, but if we're trying to manage family finances the godly way, the right thing is that there should be transparency and there should be honesty. You need to tell the person, if for nothing, a praying wife is one that God listens to. And in that moment of difficulty, all you need is for your partner to go on their knee and say a prayer and God can intervene. So once you agree on the family spending strategy and the investment strategy, talk about it, talk about money. One of the researches I was reading says that families who set aside 30 minutes every week to talk about money are far less likely to face financial crisis and also are less likely to end up in a divorce 
Because if you remember, I said that 50% of all divorces happen because of money problems. So talk about money. It might seem silly, and it will sound a bit tacky in the beginning. Just sit down as a family, 30 minutes every week. Talk about money. Talk about the plans. Talk about the strategy. How do we do? What do we change? What's happening? Just that process of talking about it brings out some of the difficulties. Now, I'm guilty of, in my much younger, probably first year, first year and a half of marriage, because I always thought, oh, women like surprises. So if I wanted to buy, for example, a car, I'd much rather plan everything in secret, buy it, and then bring it home as a surprise and think that, oh, you know, my wife should be very proud and happy. And then one time she came home, she's like, what is this nonsense? And I'm thinking, oh. <laughs> the amount of hard work and planning and the struggle. Apparently, it was a car my wife had hated right from when she was young. So, so these are some of the difficulties. And the amount of money and the effort and the joy that went into buying the car just died one night. So when you discuss it as a family, it was easier to make these decisions together. It limits the, dis the, if you don't, the disadvantages such as just the person being disappointed. And then apparently, if I had spoken to my wife, the cash actually wanted cost a third of what I bought. And this is me coming home, my shoulders very high, thinking, wow, she'd be very impressed. She was not. We sold the car for a loss. And that was the last time I ever bought a car without telling my wife. So just spending time to talk about money as a family can solve half the problems relating to marital problems. And the reason is half the reasons people get divorced is because of money. The next one is slightly controversial. Make a will. I contemplated putting this one in or removing it. And I thought, OK, I'm probably the only one who can talk about this and not add emotions to it. Our culture does not like to talk about death. But there are only two things that are certain from a taxman's perspective is death and taxes. Whether we like it or not, we will pay tax. And whether we like it or not, we will die. The difficulty is that because we find death to be morbid, to be a very unpleasant discussion, things that are supposed to help make life easy in the event of a loss of a loved one, we don't do them. It is very important in managing your family's finances to make a will. Now, why do we make a will? Growing up, we live in a society, a culture, where even as a child, certain snippets of information is being fed into the minds of, of both the, our sons and our daughters. Hey, you know, the, the things that people have in their minds. I used to work as an auditor. And you have no idea on a yearly basis the amount of money banks write off into their profit and loss as a result of people who have died and they, nobody actually knows they have their bank account and eventually they write it off to PL. You have no idea. You have no idea the millions and millions that wives do not know their husbands have, husbands do not know their wives have, children do not know their parents have, and then they die. The bank, the account goes dormant. There's a certain number of months or years they have to keep it. If nobody counts for it, we have bankers in our midst. What happens? They sweep it to PL. It just goes to add to the bank's profit and loss. And the sad thing is that a lot of these families are actually struggling. But then the, one of the spouses, the man or the wife, has substantial amount of money in the bank and the other doesn't know about. 
Now, when you talk to people, the argument is that, oh, if he knows I have this money, he'll spend it. If she knows I have this money, she'll chop it. Fine. If you don't want the person to know of the money, even in your life, at the very least, make a will. Be as descriptive as possible in your will, so that in the unlikely event that God calls you, once they chance on that will, every single asset that your blood and sweat has purchased will be found by your family or your dependents, wherever you live, so they can go for it. Because if you don't, it goes to the bank. Similarly, there are lands that people have purchased. They have land titles. They own the land. It's fully paid for. They never told their spouse, maybe because, oh, this I want to buy and hide and build as a surprise to my wife or to my husband. Or I want to build something so that if something goes wrong, we have something there. I don't want to tell the other party. Remember that one of the things that's very certain is death. And none of us know the time when God will call us. So if most of your money and sweat over 10 years has gone into building a property that your spouse or your family does not know about, remember that if you do die, two things happen. Either goes back to the chief, but if it's a state land, if nobody is claiming it, after I think it's either seven years or 10 years, the state actually has the right to re-enter the land. If you buy a land from a state, and for seven years you have not developed, you haven't done anything, the government actually has the right to go back and go and collect the land from you. Especially if the land is deemed to have been abandoned. It's different if you know, there's work or you have a caretaker on it or you've done hoarding or you've put some small thing on it, but if the land is deemed to have been abandoned, you haven't done anything on it, the state actually has the right to go back for it. So one of the things I talk about in managing family finances, make a will. If it's difficult for you to do, there are will templates. In fact, you can see me, I can give you a template. Something as simple as saying, all my property, I leave to my children, and then I appoint my spouse as the custodian. And then you attach an appendix, just listing all the properties. But most importantly, listing all your bank account. Uh, well, you might think that, yeah, we're talking about managing finances in the home, so we're assuming we are all alive. But when we manage the finances in the home, it should include even if God calls one of the partners, the other one that's left still has an obligation to manage the home finances. And similar to Will, the next one is life insurance. I've been a witness to significant devastation that happens to families when the primary breadwinner is called to glory. And as difficult as this is, similar to Will, if you have a situation where the primary breadwinner ends majority of the home's finances, or in some cases, is the only breadwinner in the family and the other person doesn't work. What we don't think about is, in the event that that person is not around, practically, the family would not be able to survive. But because we are Christians and we have faith, we always assume that challenge. I shall not die, I will live today. The devil is a liar. We will die, I mean, that fact, let's agree. <laughs> I'm not trying to scare us, but the fact is we will die and nobody knows the time, right? So when it comes to a family where only one person is the breadwinner or one person is the primary breadwinner, it is always important to have a life insurance equal to the replacement of the income of that person as though they were around. Now, it's not in all cases that you need to replace the income, but at least you need to replace the family source of survival. Good example, if somebody earns 10,000 and say the spouse doesn't work, say a woman earns 10,000, husband doesn't work, and then the family needs 3,000 to survive on a monthly basis, you don't necessarily need life insurance of 10,000. You need life insurance that can pay you 3,000 a month because that replaces 
the survival income of the family. Now, without that life insurance, most companies, especially if the person is not, does not die in, in work or in line of duty, they usually have two or three months check that they give to say thank you. And the question is, if you wake up the next morning and the primary breadwinner is gone and all you have is three months salary of the person to survive on, there would be disaster. Every now and then we see it. Our kids are in schools, we've seen parents die and then the next term they can't continue the school because they can't afford the fees. I have some very practical situations that I've dealt with, very difficult and very practical situations. And this relates more to, to the first one of making a will where a child in school lost the father and the, the mother was not working. They were pretty comfortable. The businessman, relatively very well to do. And at the time the man died of an accident, at the time the accident happened, that day, that Thursday evening at home, the woman only had like 20 CDs in her pocket, which was not a problem because anytime you need money, oh, go to daddy and collect, oh, go to daddy, oh, go. So the man gets an accident, does not come back home. The woman wakes up on Friday morning and only has 20 CDs in her pocket. Now, what a lot of you don't know is that once somebody is late, and officially the bank is aware that the person is dead. One of the first things they do is they lock down the person's account. In fact, it is illegal to withdraw money from a dead person's account. It's a criminal offense. At least it's good if you know the account is there. Now, if you don't know, that's, even, that's another story altogether. So as early as Saturday morning, this family did not have money to buy bread. And these are real stories. This is not, this is not a fabrication. These are practical stories. Years ago, in one of the places I worked, we lost one of our colleagues. Very smart guy, very sharp, you know, one of the most talented lawyers in Ghana. Had an accident on the way to the hometown and died. And because he was make, doing so well, they had agreed that the wife should stay home and take care of the children. Same situation. Making good money, living in a nice place. They were renting, well, the plan was to eventually buy or build, but the money was there, so the worry was not there. Young couple, so. Children were, I think, four and two. The guy died, and as early as the following week, there was no money to buy prepaid electricity. These are very, very real stories that I have had to deal with. And for that one, thank God for um, a good boss at the time. The boss put together some kind of a trust. People contributed, we did programs, and put together, and somehow, through that trust for the children, of which the company contributed because this was a substantial worker and he had brought in quite a lot of money to the company, managed to buy a property for them and also the trust put money into the education of the children to the Finnish university. I kid you not. If the boss or the company had not done that, those kids would have been out of school. And as early as one week after their father died, there was practically no money to buy bread. I like that example because it's practical. You wake up in the morning and there's no money to buy bread. So. In planning the family finances, we don't only focus on, on the now. We also have to focus on tomorrow and the day after. And that's where the thing like having a will and having life insurance comes in. I'm sorry, I knew that this was going to um, scare some of you because we don't like to talk about death. And, and then my last one in this subtopic is a saying I heard so many years ago. It says that the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And this point here is inventing the future. One of the best things that you can do is dream together with your partner. And from very practical experience, I find out that, and this 
let's be careful we don't go into this whole energy thing about the world, but even the world believes it that when you want something, you want it strongly enough. You say it, you dream it, you sleep it, you believe it, you confess it, and you work towards it. Somehow, you end up getting it. We are people of faith, so let's focus on the faith side. If you have faith in something and you join your faith with somebody's, the Bible says that when two people agree on a matter, it is enforced. So when you discuss, you dream, you share your dreams, your thoughts, your ambition on the family's finances with your spouse, and you plan it, somehow, as you pray towards it, God steps in. I always say that one of the happiest moments of, of my marriage was probably the first few years of marriage when you have very little, barely enough to, to survive, but you sit down and you dream together. You sit down and you plan and you hope and you say, you know, if God does this, this is what we will do. If God does this, this is what we will do. I look back and most of those things that we talked about, that we dreamt together, somehow have come to pass. But then it's only when you look back and realization that they actually happened because we agreed on them, we planned them together, we prayed towards them, we worked towards them. So dream, but dream together with the stars. If you call two people, a couple, separate them, and you ask one, if you want 10 million pounds today, what would you do with it? And they tell you their answer, and they say, if your husband want 10 million pounds, what would he do with it? And they write the answer. And you did the same test to the other person. You asked the, the husband, if you want 10 million pounds in lottery, what would you do with it? And you ask, what would your wife do with it? You are likely to find that the answers will be as far apart as Jerusalem and Jericho. But what happens is that when you dream together, when you plan, including all the way into retirement, what happens is that there's a convergence of purpose. And for a lot of people, the money that God brings into your hand, remember our first point, is actually to aid your purpose. And so once you talk more, so you talk about the family, you talk about the money, you talk about the future, you dream together, then there's likely to be convergence of purpose. And in moments like that, God is more likely to, like we said, vest in that couple to be custodians of the wealth that God himself gives. Because that couple collectively would use that wealth towards honoring God, which is our second point. It's good to have money. But imagine having the money and you want to pay that. Your wife says, it's not happening. Or you say, oh, we need to support this church. And your husband says, it's not happening. Because especially where it's family wealth, it's a joint purpose. You might have a cause you want to support in the church. If the partner says no, it's not happening. So I believe that if we start to talk about money, if we start to discuss the issues, if we start to dream together, if we plan towards the utilization of the family money, but if we ultimately see that money as coming from God, and we the people are simply custodians of the money God has given to us. It's the first step towards managing the family finances. It doesn't solve the problem, but it is better than not having a plan at all. Thank you very much. We hope this sermon blessed you. If it did, will you consider sharing it with a friend? And if you're in Accra looking for a spirit-filled community to worship with, why don't you join us at Mikado Plaza, Aboni Junction, Accra, on Sundays from 9 to 10.30 a.m. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Accra Church and visit our website, accrachurch.org, for more sermons. God bless you.